0: Welcome to the Business Divorce Roundtable. I'm Peter Mahler. My very special guest for this podcast is Professor Susan Pace Hamill. Professor Hamill teaches tax and business law at the University of Alabama. Professor Hamill is widely recognized as one of the leading scholars and commentators on the origins, development, and the explosive growth of the limited liability company. Statistics show that LLCs have become the preferred choice of entity for privately held business firms across the country ever since Wyoming first enacted its LLC law in 1977. Professor Hamill is the author of numerous law review articles on LLCs and other business law topics. I invited her onto the podcast to discuss her latest article, published in Volume 51 of the Cumberland Law Review, entitled, Some Musings as LLCs Approach the 50-Year Milestone. The article retraces the forces that led to the LLC revolution, as well as the forces that drove their transition away from their partnership attributes toward the corporation model. Her article also draws special attention to the troubling disparities between the rights of minority members of LLCs versus other business forms under the evolved LLC statutes that did away with default rules granting withdrawal and buyout rights. The professor's article covers a lot more ground than we were able to cover in the interview, so you'll want to go to my New York Business Divorce blog, where you'll find a link to the article. So without further ado, I give you Professor Susan Pace Hamill. Professor Hamill, thank you for joining me on the Business Divorce Podcast.
1: It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Your scholarship on LLCs caught my attention literally decades ago when I started writing on the subject you did it again most recently with an article which I guess is forthcoming in the Cumberland Law Review, if I'm not mistaken.
1: It just came out. I got my reprints today, so the uh, the, the volume is out.
0: Excellent, excellent. And it's one of, I gather, many, many law review articles that you've written over the years. This one's entitled Some Musings as LLCs Approach the 50-year milestone. Now, before we dive into that, you know, you have a most interesting professional background. I'd like to share that with listeners. From what I see, you, you cut your teeth as a young lawyer working with some very top law firms in New York City and then went into the chief counsel's office of the IRS. Do I have that right so far?
1: That is correct.
0: And then you've been teaching at the Alabama, um, University of Alabama School of Law, for I think over 25 years, teaching tax and, and business law. Is that right, too? That's right, too. And here it gets really interesting. You've, you've also been a prominent activist targeting injustice embedded in the law, is what I read, including challenging state tax policies on race-based equal protection grounds. You also ran for a seat in the Alabama legislature, so, so and
1: probably the subject of a different podcast, if you want to get into it. But well, all of that is is correct.
0: I, I can't say I've met many lawyers who have the, the range of experience you have. Private practice, government service, teaching, politics, public interest litigation. Very impressive. Have I left anything out? Uh,
1: I think that about covers it. And I appreciate your good words. Uh, I consider the opportunity to work on all of these issues especially the public interest litigation,
0: to be a privilege. What triggered your interest in in your scholarship on the subject of LLCs?
1: I was looking for a way to get on the inside track to be a partner at a large New York City law firm. And I nosed around with some experienced lawyers and they said, gee, this Wyoming limited liability company just got uh, its right to be taxed as a partnership It could be the wave of the future. And if you can get ahead of it and establish yourself as an expert, then you will have a real inside chance to be a partner in a big New York City law firm, which you know is about impossible to achieve under ordinary circumstances. So I wrote a law review article about the Wyoming LLC. And at that time, Florida had a statute as well. There were only two. The article was published uh, in 1989, one year after LLCs were recognized uh, taxable as partnerships. And instead of getting on the inside track for the big New York City law firm, I used it to get myself at the chief counsel's office at the government in the area of that office that had subject matter jurisdiction over LLC. And during the time I was at the uh, chief counsel's office, uh, the number of states enacting LLC statutes went from two to almost 50. This was during the first part of the 1990s. And that's when I got to be good friends with Bob Keating and Barbara Sputus. Those were um, prominent ABA committee chairs with task forces on LLCs. You know, sort of looking to coordinate this this rise of this new business organization.
0: Were they working on the uh, early stages of the Uniform LLC Act? Oh, yes. The title of your article refers to a 50 year milestone, which puts us back to what, around 1970, 71. I always thought that the timeline started in the late 70s with the Wyoming Act. How do we go back 50 years?
1: Well, I said approach 50 years. the The first attempt. To create a LLC statute was in 1975. Frank Burke, the late Frank Burke, is the father of LLCs. And he had a client who was an independent oil explorer that uh, had been conducting the business operations in foreign business entities, such as uh, Panamanian Limitadas. Those governments were proving to be difficult to work with. Frank Burke's client basically wanted a domestic business organization that offered limited liability and partnership taxation. And so Frank Burke invented one. Now, Frank Burke could have easily convinced his client, look, just use a domestic limited partnership and we'll minimally capitalize a corporate general partner and we will achieve in substance what you want. But Frank Burke chose to create something new, which was to draft a statute from scratch that basically copied the Uniform Partnership Act when it came to things like dissolution and transferability and then took it to Alaska in 1975 and tried to get the Alaska legislature to pass it. And uh, the, the bill failed in Alaska in 1975 and in 76. We don't know why we think it had to do with vendetta between legislators. In other words, we don't think it had anything to do with the bill itself being uh, complicated or controversial. And so Frank got frustrated and took his new LLC to Wyoming. And the Wyoming legislature passed the first LLC statute in 1970.
0: 50 years is a long time, measured at least you know by the human lifespan. But it, it's, it's like lightning speed when you look at the LLC's travel, I think, as, as you described it, from obscurity to the mainstream, You know, where currently LLCs account for, I think you said more than 25% of business tax filings at the expense of corporations and, and, and partnerships. Do you agree that that is a phenomenon that, that the LLCs have become, as another commentator called it, the king of the hill in such a short time?
1: I absolutely agree with it. And if we didn't have so many small businesses stuck in the corporate form, I call it stuck in the Hotel California, we'd have more LLC. Uh, Small businesses operating as corporations that have a, a substantial amount of appreciated assets or low basis assets because they enjoy tax depreciation. If they try to switch over to an LLC, that's a deemed liquidation and will trigger all the tax game For new businesses, my advice is, when in doubt, don't incorporate, choose an LLC.
0: We have a timeline where Wyoming is the first state to enact an LLC statute in 77, but it takes another, what, 10 or so years before the IRS gives its blessing on partnership tax treatment of the LLC. Is that about right?
1: That is correct. During that period, Wyoming and Florida were the only states that had LLC statutes. We did some research. It was was very uh, intense research. We had to contact Secretary of State's offices. But our best estimation is less than 100 business forms chose to be LLCs. While its partnership tax classification remained uncertain.
0: In the late 80s, the IRS okays partnership tax treatment of LLCs. There's a wave of legislation that, over the next, what, five or six years, results in all of the states adopting some form of an LLC Act, correct?
1: The wave of legislation started in 1990 with the state of Kansas, and then you had the state of Virginia. The state of Delaware didn't wake up until 1992. So the early states were states where the relationship between the business bar and the tax bar and the legislature was was chummier and more informal. And then once it started to catch on like a snowball, the other states quickly followed. And then the more states that enacted LLC statutes, the more the, you could say, trailing states or the the states without statutes were willing to wake up and kind of get on the bandwagon this is how uh, corporation statutes were invented you had the early general incorporation laws in the 19th century and then other states jumped on the bandwagon to pass their first general incorporation laws.
0: New York caught the LLC wave relatively late in the game. They didn't enact it until 94 after it was uh, attempted to pass through the legislature for a few years, and there were concerns over loss of revenues. But then, you know, as you say, they they had to catch up with all of their neighboring states and other states across the country. You have, by the mid-1990s, virtually if not all of the states have enacted LLC laws, but Am I correct that there's still a, a lag uh, in the period, say, the f- through the mid to the latter part of the 90s, where you don't see all that many LLCs, relatively speaking, being formed? And, and and if I'm right about that, why was that?
1: Well, the early concerns during the time of the first generation statutes were, there were the comedy concerns, you know, did uh, would one state recognize another state's statute, those concerns died out quickly once you had most of the states and by 1996, all of the states with statutes. There were also concerns about business issues of the LLC itself. In order to create a slam-dunk, taxed-as-a-partnership business organization, these LLCs not only closely resembled general partnerships, in many ways they were super general partnerships. They dissolved on the departure or change of any member and you couldn't transfer an interest without unanimous consent and some of the statutes created what they called bulletproof statutes by making these provisions immutable and there was a lot of consternation concerning the business feasibility of llc's as long as they remained so tethered to be super general partnership like and there was a lot of lobbying to the Internal Revenue Service to, hey, if limited partnerships can pretty much resemble corporations and kind of jump through these classification hoops in a, uh, you could say, a formalistic way that didn't have any meaning, then LLC should have the same rights. And the government hemmed and hawed and dragged its feet. I was at many of those meetings, but by the time we got to the end of 1996, the government threw in the towel and said, oh, just tax them all as partnerships. We don't care what their provisions are. That created two developments. One, businesses could choose LLCs and through their operating agreements, get rid of the undesirable super partnership traits, which was good for the businesses. And it also paved the way for LLCs to more strongly resemble corporations, which was a related development but still a very different development because the development where LLCs went from being super partnerships to being, we'll say, ordinary partnerships and then swinging over to the corporation side of the fence. Well, the swinging over to the corporation side of the fence was motivated by tax planning, but it was estate and gift tax planning that that was the tax tail that wagged the dog.
0: And that that is referencing the need to um, provide a basis for significant discounts in valuation of LLC interest, no?
1: That's right. Under the very, and this is cited in the Musings article, and I also cite some other articles that address this issue. Buried in the gift and estate tax valuation standards. If a family business wants the discount, because the the person inheriting the share is inheriting essentially a not liquid share can't you know can't can't get yourself bought out the uh, the lack of buyout right has to be in the statutory default the mere operating agreement won't do in other words if the if LLCs left the right to dissociate and be bought out in the default and then you had the operating agreement of a family business strip those rights, which, which default means operating agreement can do that. That will not get mm. you the discount valuation. And so the gift and estate tax planners, and believe me, they are some of the best planners in the world. They uh, lobbied heavily for uh, LLCs to not only eliminate dissolution triggers, not only eliminate the immutable super partnership traits, but to eliminate any dissociation and buyout rights in the statutory default. I remember when this was happening in Alabama in the late 90s, and I said to my colleague, I'm not sure this is good business policy, because what you're going to do is import into LLCs all the close corporation issues that have been clogging the courts for years. And he said, you're not thinking of going down to Montgomery and causing any trouble, are you? So LLCs, you know, and this picked up steam big time in the late 90s, swung from being partnership like to being corporate like. And by the year 2000, not only did we have this transformation into the corporate world of LLCs well on its way to being complete, it didn't really get to be fully complete till into the 2000s. By the year 2000. 10% of business organizations were LLCs. I have, in the Musings article, various statistics of income information, you know, on the relative growth of the number of biz orgs. And the last, the the latest information I was able to get was a freedom of information request for the year 2019. 27% of business organizations are LLCs. And I bet you, you know, we're now in the year 2021, about to start 2022 soon. I bet you that if it hasn't already crossed the 30 percent threshold, that it will.
0: You know, what you've described uh, very, very accurately depicts what happened in New York with the swing, with those amendments that were enacted in the late 90s that flipped the default rules with respect to some of the dissolution provisions and flipped it with respect to to withdrawal rights, eliminating uh, withdrawal rights as, as a default rule. But in New York, and I don't know if this is characteristic of, of many other states, the, the LCs took on these corporate characteristics but did not also update the remedies available to minority members of LOCs to bring them in conformity with the minority rights, the, the rights of minority shareholders of closely held corporations, including minority, you know, shareholder oppression statutes that I know New York adopted in the late 70s. And I believe many, many other states enacted that kind of legislation for close corporations also I don't know if in the 60s or the 70s, but a lot of states did that. So it left LLC members holding minority interests in a worse position prior to those amendments. Is that uh, a fair statement?
1: Well, first of all, during the years of LLC growth, starting at the close of the first decade of the 2000s, getting into the second decade, Professor, one of my jobs is to pay attention to the trends of not only the, the trends of my scholarship but the trends of what I teach. And I teach the basic business organizations class, which we obviously cover the business problems in closely held corporations, which by the early 70s, they were ubiquitous. They were the choice for small business because small business did not like the liability exposure of general partners. So the, the question obviously becomes, as I predicted when I was grousing about Alabama's changes, if we eliminate dissociation and buyout rights and the statutory default, that means you have to plan for them. And as you know, buy-sell agreements, if, if they're drafted poorly, can do more harm than good. Or as I tell my students, it's like playing with fire. And if you don't do a good job, you're, somebody's going to get burned with a buy-sell agreement because someone will get low-balled out when the agreement's triggered. But if there is no agreement, LLCs have always been majoritarian structured as far as the management and as far as general voting patterns. So you have a potential for the majority of the, of, of the members to exclude another member if they're falling out. And if the, if the business model for the LLC is closely held, where ownership and control are not as a matter of substance separate, where the participants are not only investing as investors as far as their capital, but also what I say, their time and talents, which is means you have your equity investment and your sweat investment. And you're in this business, not just as an investor, but also to make a living. Then you have what we call the classic minority freeze out, squeeze out oppression. And the question is, well, shouldn't LLC members in this position, have the same remedies as a shareholder in a corporation? Now, my answer to that is, yes, they should. There is no difference. The fact that they're taxed differently, corporation versus LLC, is irrelevant because the business issue of oppression and squeeze out has nothing to do with tax policy. And in fact, the reason why LLCs are in this position is because they were driven by the tax tail and they were invented by the tax tail. And so business issues with LLCs should be resolved at the state level based on how the state treats corporations or partnerships, depending on which the LLC resembles. Now the state of Massachusetts is the model of perfect parity in 2008 and 2018 respectively and these cases are in the footnotes of the Musings article, the Massachusetts Supreme Court applied the famous cases of Donahue and Wilkes, which created remedies for poor squeezed squeezed-out minority shareholders. Citing those cases, they applied the same remedy to the minority LLC member. Recognizing that nothing new under the sun here, we're going to apply Massachusetts law in the same way.
0: Professor, was that in the absence of any Massachusetts statute governing Massachusetts LLCs?
1: statute the involuntary dissolution statute for both corporations and LLCs does not have an oppression remedy. And the reason is that the uh, Massachusetts policymakers believe that the Massachusetts courts and their common law remedies should be the vehicle to address these concerns. Or as I say to my students, Massachusetts has a one-track remedy to this, not a two-track remedy. You see, in states that have a statutory dissolution provision and a common law remedy, you're kind of like dealing with two railroad lines going the same direction, but maybe taking different twists and turns. It gets a little confusing. Massachusetts is committed to minority remedies, but they are committed in addressing them in the courts
0: alone. So they had, the Massachusetts courts had sort of a clean slate that they could write on, whereas in states like New York and many other states where they have dissolution statutes and and set forth grounds, uh, various grounds for dissolution and various remedies for dissolution, they don't have that clean slate. So their hands are somewhat tied, no?
1: No, I don't agree with that at all. The state of New York was a leader in adopting the oppression remedy in the involuntary dissolution statute in the New York corporation law. And in fact, the New York cases are in many of the BizOrg textbooks in developing, well, what does oppression mean? Defeating reasonable expectations, burdensome, harsh, unjust. There was nothing that would have prevented the New York legislature from putting the same statutory remedy in the LLC statute. The LLC statute does not have a involuntary dissolution remedy for oppression. The language is not reasonably practical to carry on the business
0: which they which they ripped right out of the limited partnership
1: of course but nobody was thinking about it because limited partnerships tend to be corporation like you have the limited partners tend to be more like investors and they rely on the general partner to run the show and hopefully earn a profit although limited partnerships kind of have a dark history because in their heyday they were tax shelters for passing along losses New York LLC statute could have added the oppression remedy just like the corporation statute. And if anybody asked my advice, I would have suggested that they do so. And then you would have the question, do we interpret the standard for oppression with LLC minority members the same way we do corporation minority shareholders? And my answer to that would be they should be the same. They should be within a particular state. There should be Parity in the remedy offered to an aggrieved minority owner. I'm using the word owner to encompass both corporation shareholder and LLC member. It's the same problem. Remedies should be the same in a particular state. The states don't have the same remedies. The state of Delaware does not recognize such remedies for minority squeezed out owners. They don't recognize it for In the corporation world, see Nixon versus Blackwell. They don't recognize it in the LLC world. This is also discussed in the Musings article. Delaware is very law and economics, very contractarian, Very much, you make your corporate bed, you lie in it, and if you want a remedy, then you need to address it in the contract ahead of time. Arguably, that's harsh, but I got to say this for Delaware, they are consistent. Completely opposite from Massachusetts, but consistent as far as Delaware LLCs and Delaware corporation. What bothers me is that there are other states where there's inconsistency. LLC minority members in a oppressive squeeze out situation have less remedies under the law than the parallel minority corporate Mm -hmm. shareholder. And I think within a particular state that is unjust. And that's the case in New York. It's the case in Alabama. It's the case in Virginia. And there's probably other states as well. There's 14 states that have no oppression statutory involuntary dissolution remedy for LLCs. and But they do have an oppression involuntary dissolution remedy in the corporate statute. 14 states, they are cited, they, the statutes are cited in the Musings
0: article. I've referred to what I can call the, you know the two worlds of a of LLCs and I sort of link that to my attitude about Delaware's leadership in the export of LLCs and and the Chancery Court's well-deserved reputation as the as the leading business court in the country with great influence over other courts including New York's. And the, by those two worlds, I sort of refer to what I think of when I think of a Delaware LLC it tends to be more you know a highly capitalized, LLC among sophisticated parties there may be passive investors as well as you know a board of directors style uh, management and that's a very different LLC than your you know your family-owned business LLC or the three or four people who get together and start up whatever kind of business they start up with very little capital and the concerns and needs vis-a-vis majority versus minority and the ability of minority members particularly to protect themselves by hiring competent and counsel to me, it's a world of difference, and it just underscores the problem of trying to design, whether statutorily or by judicial decision making, you know, a uniform set of rules for those two very different types of LLCs. Any, any thoughts about that? I
1: do have thoughts about it because it's the, the problem you raised, which is LLCs can resemble a classic corporation in having passive investors and a board-like management structure. And they can also resemble classic partnerships and being closely held. Yes, that's true for LLCs. And you know what? It's been true for corporations since the rise of the closed corporation. So a student asked me a question that I think is going to address your concern. The student said, Professor, is the involuntary dissolution remedy in the corporate statute, is that remedy available to a shareholder in a publicly traded corporation? I said, technically, yes, but they're going to get laughed out of court if they try to use it because the, the passive investor how could they i've been oppressed well how could that be one there's no such thing as a buyout right unless you negotiate for it and the usual way you sell is on the market and if you're unhappy with what the board is doing the place to go is not my investment is being oppressed but the board is breaching its fiduciary duties to the corporation and we have well developed which some would say too weak, derivative litigation addressing the fiduciary duties of corporate managers. That's in the fiduciary duty part of of the Musings article. So while the oppression remedy isn't limited to closely held corporations, you'd have to define that as a practical matter. The facts and circumstances that would give rise to such a remedy, if it exists, is not going to come up In the in the publicly traded uh, management and control a centralized situation, which doesn't mean the investors won't end up unhappy. And if you have a kind of a odd situation where, let's say, you have classes of stock that that from an economic level aren't different; they're classed stock with maybe some different voting rights, but from a equity economic level that they're the same. And if the directors you know, dumped one class with a lot of dividends and then decided not to pay dividends for the other class, you've got a potential self-dealing situation here, particularly if there's nefarious reasons for one class being favored economically, such as maybe heavy director ownership in that class, which would trigger the fairness to the other investors. This is this is applying the self-dealing standards of the seminal Delaware case of Sinclair versus Sinclair been 1971 anchor, anchor, anchor case. Again, the remedies as far as your classic investors in what I'm going to call a widely held, publicly traded management and control are separate, not fused, are there. They lie in the fiduciary realm. They would not be invoked as a matter of oh, I'm being oppressed in the statutory involuntary dissolution oppression provision. But the oppression provision does not have these limitations explicitly there, but you can see the practical, I call this the practical boundaries. If you understand well the practical circumstances of the law and when the remedies come up. That's how I answered the student's question about the corporate involuntary dissolution provisions on the grounds of oppression and i would answer that question the same way in a llc statute that had such an oppression remedy you know well you have a publicly traded llc and they are emerging or a widely held one with passive investors could they invoke the oppression remedy my answer would be no but we would have to look at yeah. the fiduciary duty remedies if you know there's concerns and issues of, as to how the board managers are carrying out their duties.
0: Professor, the... Um the Revised Uniform LLC Act, which is now, has been adopted in, I think, last count I saw was 22 states, and it's got legislation pending in two others. And one of the states that adopted it was Alabama, by the way, not New York. Has that helped, in your view, to harmonize the remedies available to minority shareholders versus minority LLC members? I mean, the LLC Act, the revi- the Rolka, uh, as we call it, as written anyway, does include oppression as grounds for involuntary dissolution, and it makes a reference to the ability of courts to provide remedies, you know, other than dissolution, i.e. buyouts. I don't know that every state that adopts RULCA also includes those specific provisions, but I would guess most of them do. Has that helped the situation See, in that's your view? Where the
1: devil, that's where the devil's in the details. The The Alabama statute may claim to have adopted the RUCA, but the Alabama statute's involuntary dissolution provision in the LLC statute does not have an oppression remedy. It copies Delaware, lock, stock, and barrel.
0: Which is the same as New York.
1: Correct. So this is what I tell my students. I don't care what the preamble says they've done as far as we've adopted this or we've adopted that. You cannot deal with an LLC at all unless you have the most current version of that state's statute right there under your notes. And we went through almost like a checklist, what you must first determine before you determine anything. Is this a maximized freedom of contract LLC statute? Delaware is, Alabama is. I have no idea whether New York is. I can't keep up with 50 state statutes. That's kind of the downside of BizOrgs being a state law foundation. We've got the quintessential uh, example of interstate commerce where the foundation is state law. The reason for that is history. That's another topic, but it's highly inefficient. You know, another thing, operating agreements, do they have to be in writing or can they be oral? Because the oral possibility, which of course, no planner worth their salt is ever going to rely on an oral agreement. But, you know, the classic shareholder agreement has to be in writing. And if it's not in writing, it's not there. It's thrown out under the statute of frauds. Whereas the entertainment of at least, if you can prove it, we we will recognize an oral agreement. That is a very partnership-like impulse. You know, LLCs have to go one way or the other on that. And for years, Alabama required operating agreements for LLCs to be in writing. And in 2014, they switched over to allow oral agreements. So that, hence I said, you have to have the most recent statute for that state under your notes. You cannot rely on a summary of, well, it's like this or it's like that, because it may adopt parts of the Uniform Act, for example, but in, in key areas, not, because it it... it It truly is a unique creature of its own, and the birth of LLCs and its phenomenal growth is completely due to its advantage of combining corporate limited liability and partnership taxation under subchapter K, meaning free of subchapter S restrictions. That fueled its birth, and that Continues to fuel its growth uh, and the business statutes themselves. I tell my students are the least uniform of all the biz orgs.
0: Professor, your your musings article concludes with uh, you know some dire prediction about LLCs. Let me read. Let me uh, quote from it if you don't mind. You write the use of LLCs has strayed beyond the honorable intentions behind its invention and early development. I predict that as LLCs cross the half century threshold, they will become an instrument of additional schemes, that's a strong word, making the business world worse off and creating the need for further federal intervention. Um you've got to keep
1: reading to get the context. Keep reading.
0: Such future schemes can no more be blamed on LLCs than other business problems occurring long before LLCs joined the business organization landscape, all of which are caused by state law control over the foundation of business organizations and the flawed business tax structure or state another way the more things change the more they remain the same I think I've come to the end of your article um, why such a dire prediction and what's the federal intervention that you have in mind
1: well okay let's go let's let's go back to what I'm alluding to business law evolved foundationally in the states from its very beginning the early litigation over the first when the first general partners started moonlighting with on each other the state courts, had to sort out whether there were legal remedies for the early breaches of fiduciary duty. It was a state court thing, and business in the 1700s didn't usually cross state lines. You had the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker. The early corporations were to develop bigger projects that required continuity of life, that required infusion of capital, like the the first turnpikes, the first education institutions, the first canals the first banks financial institutions and for historical reasons the issuance of the first corporate charters that gave legal recognition to the first corporations these were done one by one by special bill were issued by the well the very first american corporate charters were issued by the uh, british parliament and the british crown by the way and then the uh, early colonial assemblies and then the first state legislatures. The federal law never took over the issuance of the first corporations because they just they, they weren't interested. There was some near misses. This is in another article. By the time we got to the late 19th and early 20th century corporations and, and, and now we have the first general incorporation statutes, which are state law, and we have the early race to the bottom, which Delaware won meaning the favorite place for the ancestors of our big business, which weren't strongly regulated at all, which is how we got the stock market crash of 1929 as well as other lax protection of investors. And then we had all of a sudden a cry out, oh, we need federal licensing. We need federal corporate chartering. We need to take this legal entity out of state law control. Four presidential administrations tried. Both Roosevelt's and then in between them, Taft and Wilson, all Failed. So then what happened? You had your first strong federal law was the Securities Acts of 1933 and 34 to say, OK, we don't care where your corporation is organized. When you offer stock, you have to meet certain disclosure requirements. And when you solicit proxies, you have to meet certain standard because we don't trust the states to, to do a good job providing legal protection because they're too busy competing with each other. That's how we got the state law foundation over biz orgs. And then when federal law chooses to, which they can under the Commerce Clause, to say, wait a minute, we don't care where the business is, federal law, and they got to spell out the requirements of federal law. That's the two-tier state and federal approach. So not only do business lawyers have to deal with the fact that business law is a 50 state creature with each biz org having its own statute. But when federal law applies, it of course supersedes whatever the state law would allow. So you got the dance between federal and state law, which I call the 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 Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers dance. And of course, Ginger has high heels and is backward. So you could say that's the state law dealing with it because that's harder and more unwieldy than federal law. That's what I mean I mean is that the the, so why is LLC is going to be used more for scheming? Well, because they're growing faster, because they also offer the holy grail of corporate liability protection, unless you pierce the veil, of course, and the partnership taxation.
0: When I hear the word scheme, though, I think of a victim. Who's the victim of the scheme?
1: Well, okay, did you read the part of my article called Other Unfortunate Uses of LLC? Starting in 2015, I I got phone calls from investigative reporters, the New York Times, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the big paper in Memphis about... LLCs being used to obscure the owner of real estate. See, over time, the the, the first generation statutes, you had to identify in the articles who the managers were. But over time, as the LLC statutes were amended, by the state legislatures in response to whatever lobbying they're getting, it became easier to obscure who who the wizard is behind the curtain. And so what happened was you would have these LLCs owning in Manhattan. It was these expensive condominiums and the uh, New York housing authority or whoever was trying to figure out who really owned these condominiums. And they found, well, it's owned by this LLC and the registered agent is this corporation and we can't get any further but they were they suspected that these LLCs were owned by some nefarious characters wanted for fraud and you know, basically not the sort of folks that you want owning some of the pristine real estate in Manhattan. In other places such as Atlanta and Memphis, you had these blighted rental properties in these cities and the, you know, the city housing authorities would try to figure out, well, who's in charge of this real estate because there's all these issues of habitability. And they would find out, well, the the building is owned by an LLC and the registered corporate agent is X corporation and they couldn't get any further. So I was getting calls on what I'm going to call the use of, of LLCs to obscure who owns real estate in, you know, in a closely held way. You know, you, I mean, Walt Disney Company owns lots of real estate as well, but Walt Disney's, Disney Company is a publicly traded corporation with a board of directors, that you can figure out who they are by getting on the internet.
0: Yeah, Well, it seems logical to me that the federal government would take the lead in, in dealing with that problem of disguised ownership of properties. And
1: they have the Corporate Transparency Act, which is a federal statute, and you have to meet within it. You know, the obviously things like Walt Disney Company will not be subject to the Corporate Transparency Act. So you have to define which entities are subject to it, and you have to ask a court, you know, to get behind the curtain, so to speak. So it's unclear how effective the Corporate Transparency Act will be. But my point in the conclusion of the article is that because LLCs, like all biz orbs, are creature of state law and can be changed by the best lobbyists at a state law level— There will be additional schemes, additional uses of it that uh, are not consistent with what I'm going to call good legal practice. And then what? Well, then you got to lobby Congress and say federal law needs to rescue this, which is exactly what happened with the real estate debacle, with the Corporate Transparency Act. But meanwhile, you had all the headache of these blighted properties. And, you know, I just I don't think this is the best way run a business law railroad. Not the fault of LLCs. It's the fault of business organization law is foundationally a state law creature.
0: Well, I guess there is, after all, a silver lining to the fact that our New York legislature has done nothing about LLC laws for probably about over 20, 20 years now, so maybe New York won't be in the uh, subject to the kind of lobbying and scheming that you're talking about, because nothing ever happens in the New York legislature when it comes to business organizations, or hardly anything ever happens. Anyway, on that note, I, I, I'd, I'd like to thank you, Professor. It's been a pleasure talking with you, and I look forward to your your future contributions to the still-evolving body of law governing LLCs. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Once again, the title of Professor Hamill's article is Some Musings as LLCs Approach the 50-Year Milestone. It's published in volume 51 of the Cumberland Law Review, and you can also find a link on my New York Business Divorce blog. Till next time, this is Peter Mahler.